We are starting into a new sermon series on Acts today. We finished sermon series on 1 John, and I'll admit, 1 John was a hard one for me to preach through because of that dynamic that I shared with you a few times where uh, it was like a, a spiral staircase where we kept going around and around in circles. And like I said, you know, the whole fire tower, that's my favorite kind of spiral staircase. And as you climb up, you get to see the same thing over and over again, but you see it from a different perspective. And that's what First John was. Same themes over and over and over. There was not a, a flow to it. Now, um, this week, Monday through Wednesday, Jen and I were down at Scioto Hills Camp. We got to go for this pastors and wives retreat. It was a great time. Ten couples, um, just really encouraging and refreshing. We did not get to go to a fire tower, though. It was a little sad. But just a few days before that, we were in Michigan visiting Emily, and we got to climb up a spiral staircase inside of a lighthouse, which is almost as good as a fire tower. You can't see anything on the way up, but when you get to the top, you get to see good things. So for those of you who have maybe grown up in Ohio, maybe spent a lot of time in Ohio, I want to show you this next picture so you know what a lake is supposed to look like, right? That's what water is supposed to look like, just, just beautiful up there from the top of lighthouse. So this is actually the narrowest point in Lake Michigan. If you started swimming west for 55 miles, you'd get to Wisconsin. It's the, the narrowest point there. So we had a great time visiting Emily in Michigan, and uh, just it was such a blessing to have Owen in a good mood that whole time. So thank you for all of you guys who are praying for that. So Acts is not like First John. Acts is a story. Acts is actually a a history. It's a timeline. It makes sense. It goes in one direction. Now, I know you guys can't see this, but what this is is a plot of Acts with the main characters. Each line represents a main character, and when they come together, it means they're like traveling together. It's like Paul and Barnabas are together as they're going. But this is the whole story of Acts, and it basically starts to the left, and it goes to the right, and it makes sense as it goes. That is refreshing to me as a preacher. It makes it easier for me to structure the sermons, easier for me to tell the stories. Now, there's a danger in that for you guys, and that is if you miss a week or a few weeks, you miss a part of the story. So, congratulations. So far, you are 100% for the story of the book of Acts, and I hope you'll stay engaged as we go through it. If you've got a pew Bible, open it to page 909. If you've got your own Bible, find the book of Acts. So it's in the New Testament. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Find that, Acts 1.1. It starts like this, with a title, probably in most of your Bibles, The Acts of the Apostles. Not, not quite there yet, Caleb. Yeah, there we go. The Acts of the Apostles. This is basically the traditional title for the book. The acts, the works, the doings of the apostles. And so we have to ask, what are we talking about with the apostles? Well, originally, when we say the apostles, we were talking about the 12 men, first called the 12 disciples, who were chosen by Jesus, handpicked by him, to be his closest companions for the three years of his public ministry. So familiar names, so Matthew, John, James, Peter, those guys are those 12 disciples, they're first called, disciple means a learner or follower, and then partway through Jesus' three-year ministry, he sends them out on a couple missions, and at that point, they become apostles. An apostle means to be sent out on mission. So they were sent on mission, they became apostles. But still, for much of the rest of those three years, they were usually referred to as the disciples. 
It's not until we get to the book of Acts that they're sort of promoted into full-time apostleship. And these guys, they get spread all over the known world, taking the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. So you got these 12 guys, and then it's 11 guys, because Judas betrays Jesus, he hangs himself. There's only 11 for a little while. We'll see uh, next week how Matthias comes in as the appointed successor or replacement for Judas. Then we're back up to 12. And then we get a few others added in later. Most famously, the Apostle Paul, who, as far as we can tell, never interacted with Jesus as Jesus was doing his, his three years of ministry. But he came to faith in Jesus, and he, he personally met the risen Christ at his conversion experience, and he's sent out as an apostle. He becomes the greatest missionary probably that the church has ever seen, spreading the gospel all over the Mediterranean region, planting churches all over the Roman Empire, and writing more books of the New Testament than anybody else. Though he was not part of the original 12, he's definitely a huge part of the apostles. And basically, the second half-ish of the book of Acts focuses on the story of Paul and his missionary journeys. The story of Acts is the story of the beginning of the fulfilling of the Great Commission. You guys are probably familiar with this. I've read it to you about three million times. This is from Matthew 28. This is Jesus giving his last words, part of his last words, as we'll see today. There were more to it, but... He says this to his disciples after the resurrection, before he ascends to heaven. He says, now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that is our mission. That's the apostles' mission. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, and I'm with you to the end of the age. That is our mission also. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach, and Jesus is with us to the end of the age. That mission has been active now for almost 2,000 years. And the story of Acts is the beginning of the fulfillment of that mission. The mission is not fulfilled yet. There is still more to do. We'll see that in just a minute. But for now, let's see how Acts starts. Acts 1.1, page 909 in the Pew Bible. In the first book, O Theophilus, wait a minute, now we're already confused. First book, this is like a second book? We didn't, it's not Acts 1 and Acts 2. Who's this guy named Theophilus? What, who's writing this? What's going on here? So Acts is written by Luke, as in the guy who wrote the book of Luke. Luke was not one of those original 12 disciples or apostles. Luke was a traveling companion, later on a missionary companion of the apostle Paul. Luke was a doctor by trade, so He's a smart guy, lots of schooling. We see that in his writings, he actually tells us that he wanted to make a careful, orderly, accurate account of what was happening. Like, he's the studier. He wants to make sure he's got the details right. 
And what we have in the book of Acts is his presentation after much research of what took place in the first few decades after the resurrection of Jesus. The book that we call Luke would be like the, the first part of that. So Acts is like the sequel. So Luke is one of the gospel books. We say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels of the New Testament. It's a little confusing because we talk about the gospel, as in the good news of Jesus. God loves you. He came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, gave up his life for you, rose from the dead to conquer sin. That's the gospel. The reason we know the gospel is because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the four gospels, which is a literary genre, a kind of writing that tell us the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that we can know the gospel. So when we say the gospel of Luke is part one, we're not saying it's different from the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel according to Luke. And it's part one of Luke's story. Acts is part two, as we get the hint right here in the beginning. So the gospel of Luke ends after the resurrection and then the ascension of Jesus. And we have to ask the question, what happened after that? Well, Acts answers that question for us. Now, we also have this name in here, Theophilus, that Luke is writing to. He addresses it to Theophilus. Now, this could be a guy's real name. It could be a code word because Theophilus means lover of God. And so Luke may be like writing to Christians in general and just referring to them as lovers of God. But I think it really is a guy. And whether that's his given name or not, maybe it's just a, a way that Luke refers to him. I believe he's a real guy. He's probably a wealthy guy who has funded the years-long research project that produced the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts because it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money, travel around, research, interview, look at sources, all of that. How is that going to be funded? Well, Theophilus is probably the wealthy patron for Luke. We don't know that. Church tradition says that. The Bible doesn't actually tell us that. All we know at this point is there seems to be a guy named Theophilus that Luke is writing to, and we can know this. He was not an attractive guy because he had Theophilus' face you've ever seen. You're welcome. All right, Luke 1, 1. This is the beginning of the story, Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So, part one of the two-part series is introduced this way. Look, lots of people have tried to make an account. I'm going to use my great doctor brain. I'm going to do a bunch of research. I'm going to lay it out for you, Theophilus, in a factual, trustworthy manner so that you can be, he says, certain concerning the things that you have been taught. That's true for us too. Much of the world says the Bible is a fairy tale. The Bible itself says, no, this is history. Here's a guy devoting years of his life, careful research, trying to present to us history. Luke wants us 
to know the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the story of the early church as it grows, and he wants us to know that we can trust him. So back to Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke starts the book of Acts by insisting that Jesus is alive. That a man who was beaten and nailed to a Roman cross and had a spear thrust through his rib cage to make sure that he's dead and put in a tomb for three days, he says, this man, Jesus, is alive. And I'm going to tell you what he did after he rose from the dead. Now that seems ridiculous to somebody outside of Christianity. How could anybody believe this? And yet, Luke is not a crazy guy. He's not off the wall. He is he's a smarty pants doctor, and he's being careful to research this stuff, and he wants us to know that Jesus really is alive. He says, for 40 days, Jesus met with the apostles and others, and he gave them instructions. He was preparing them for a mission. He was getting them ready to go out fulfill the great commission. Verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's, he's quoting Jesus there. I've already told you that the great commission sends us out. It starts with go get out of here, go. So it might be surprising to us that in those 40 days, Jesus says to his apostles, wait, wait in Jerusalem. He wants them to go. He has a mission for them to go. They're going to spread throughout the whole world. But right now he says, wait. And he says, wait in Jerusalem. That should also be surprising to us because The people who murdered Jesus are in power in Jerusalem. Let this sink in. Jesus says to the men whom he has chosen to fulfill his plan on the earth, I want you to wait in the most dangerous place in the world for you. I'm not going to tell you how long you got to wait. I'm just going to tell you to wait. So if, if you think... That being a follower of Jesus gets you safety and security and success and popularity. You get to be at the top of the heap. You are not paying attention to the New Testament. Here, at the beginning of the mission, Jesus says to the guys that the plan is resting on, go wait in the shadow of the beast that wants to devour you. They wait. They're told that they're waiting for something, but they're not told really what it means or how long they have to wait. They're told to wait for the promise of the Father. What does this mean? Well, he says in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So at least they know it's a short amount of time. They're not waiting years. It's just a few days. If we go back into the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke will tell us a little more of what's happening here. This is a quote from Jesus from three years earlier. We had John the Baptist, who's a cousin of Jesus and a crazy dude who lived out in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey, wore camel's hair. Uh, he's always using his angry voice, repent, repent. And thousands of people would come out to the Jordan River and they would confess their sins and they would be baptized under the water of the Jordan River as preparation for the coming Messiah. And one day, Jesus shows up, and John basically says to all the crowds, look, there he is. There's the one you've been waiting for. But before then, there was all this talking. and Maybe John's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ, the chosen one. And John had to address that very clearly. In Luke 3, 15 through 16, we see this. As the people... As the people were in expectation, waiting for the Messiah, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I am is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, everybody who is listening to John at that point says, what in the world is this crazy man talking about? We understand the idea of baptized in water. The word baptized simply means to dip, to immerse, right? So they go out to the Jordan River. John dunks them under the water. They are baptized. But who, what is the Holy Spirit? How, what would it mean to be immersed, dunked in the Holy Spirit? And we really don't like this idea of being immersed in fire. What are you talking about, John? This doesn't make any sense. And they got zero answers for three years until the beginning of Acts. We're going to see a couple weeks from now how this promise is fulfilled on what we refer to as the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is quite the story. Let's go back. Verse 6. Not only did they have questions about John, are you the Messiah? Not only did uh, Jesus' followers have questions about, okay, how long are we waiting? What exactly are we waiting for? They had other questions, like they still thought maybe Jesus was going to be the conquering military king who would overthrow Rome. We know this because they, they ask that next. They say, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, so speaking to the resurrected Jesus, who could just like appear and disappear, show up in a room just like that, Yet still has a physical body with holes in his hands. All that he says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you make it like the glory days of King David a thousand years ago? Will you restore that? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And I think at that point, John or maybe Thomas like elbowed Peter and said, see, I told you, he never answers these questions. Don't even ask it, Right? He's not going to tell us. Because essentially Jesus said, it's none of your business, boys. You don't get to know the times of the seasons. You don't get to know the timing of what the Father has planned. But notice, embedded in that statement, that disappointing statement, is a hopeful statement that these things really are planned. That the Father has planned this out, has ordained these things. We don't get to know what the plan is, but that doesn't mean there isn't a plan. That the the God of the universe is sovereign over it all, is ruling over it all. And we don't get to know the plan, but we get to play a part in it. Most significantly, our part is 
to trust him and to obey him. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to these guys. You don't get to know the plan, but you need to trust me and you need to obey me. You need to go wait in the shadow of the crazy people who are trying to kill you. Trust and obey. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, there's two main ideas in here. First of all, is the idea that somehow the Holy Spirit is is going to come upon the disciples. Again, we'll see that in a few weeks as we look at the story of the day of Pentecost. When that happens, whatever that means, again, they've got no idea. When that happens, they are told that they will receive power. Luke is not telling us that the Holy Spirit is power. Like in Star Wars with the force, like an impersonal thing, like it's just power, it's like invisible electricity going through the air. He's not saying that at all. The Bible presents to us the Trinitarian fact that God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three equally God and yet distinct persons. So the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it The Holy Spirit is a he, person. But he's going to give the disciples power. Power to do what? Power to be witnesses. Not power to overthrow Rome. Not power in the courts to get justice for the sham of a trial that took Jesus. Not power to do all these other things that they want to do, but power to be witnesses of the risen Christ, to proclaim the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead and offers eternal life to those who will trust in him. That is what, the, what Jesus says the purpose of the outpouring of the Spirit is. Now, this is good news for us, because if you are like me, sharing the gospel with others, even though it's the greatest news in the world, is a scary thing, right? Maybe you've never done it because it's so scary. Or maybe you've tried it and you're like, you failed, and I don't want to try it again, and it didn't work well, and I stumbled all over my words, or they're going to reject me, or the, you know, all these fears come into us. And God knew that. Jesus knew that. He knew that his disciples were going to be scaredy cats. And he says, when the Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive power to be witnesses. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to tell you you've got to just figure it out yourself and you better you know, study and become better witnesses. No, you're going to receive power to be witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. That is good news for us as we are afraid. So the second part of this promise has to do with geography. He says they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this map, which we're going to build on, the star marks Jerusalem. Right? So many, many centuries before this is taking place, the nation of Israel, which basically covers that whole area of the map there, the nation of Israel split apart. The northern part rebelled against God. The southern part remained faithful, at least for a little while. The, the northern part became known as Israel. The southern part became known as Judah, or later Judea. The capital of Judea is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the most important city in the religion and the culture of Judaism. 
if Jesus is going to launch this new religious movement that we call Christianity and it's going to come out of the religion of Judaism, then of course it's going to start in Jerusalem because that is the center of life for the Jewish people. It's also then that most dangerous place for these, what would be viewed as rebellious, blasphemous, dangerous Christians. He says, you guys are going to be my witnesses, and he says, first in Jerusalem, which is convenient because he has told them to stay in Jerusalem. They're already there, ready to be witnesses as soon as the Holy Spirit is given to them. We're going to see how that happens in a very dramatic way, where bumbling, always putting his foot in his mouth, Peter suddenly becomes preacher extraordinaire by the empowering of the Holy Spirit and shares with thousands of his fellow Jewish people in Jerusalem the good news of Jesus. But at least for right now, Luke is saying, you're going to be witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Then he says, in all of Judea. And this would be like saying in, a, in the state. So if we were talking today, it'd be like Jesus saying to us, you're going to be my witnesses in Columbus and in all of Ohio. And this, again, made complete sense to the disciples. Of course, we're going to spread the news around Judea. It's, it's all of us reasonably faithful Jewish people, and we speak the same language, and we have the same religion, and everybody's going to know the prophecies of the coming Messiah. It makes sense Start in Jerusalem, spread out to Judea, and then the next thing just knocked them on their rears. And in Samaria, he says. So remember, the northern kingdom rebelled first. Well, in its rebellion, it mixed its families and its religion with the pagans of the land, corrupting Judaism, corrupting their their lineage, which God had said not to do. They became known not as Israel, but as Samaria, and the Samaritans were the people, and they were hated by the slightly more faithful people of Judea. They were viewed as half-breeds and traitors to the one true God. So if you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that there are these scandalous moments in the life of Jesus where he loves and serves and reaches out to and values the Samaritan people, and everybody around him is like, what is wrong? Jesus has lost his mind. And here, in this version of the commissioning of the disciples, we have Jerusalem, Judea, we're tracking with you, Jesus, Samaria. Again, for us... It'd be like, you will be my witnesses in Columbus and in all of Ohio and in Michigan. I think, wait a minute. Yes, we got some heads on. No, not going to do it. Right? Okay, the land may be nice, nice clean water, right? But the people, the sports teams, I'm, I'm not sharing the gospel with these people. Like they're subhuman, right? That's just a fraction of what these guys thought of the Samaritans. And yet Jesus says, I'm sending you to them. And we'll see within the first few chapters of Acts that they are sent not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but to Samaria and the surrounding regions, and then finally to the ends of the earth. So this this next map shows us at the time, roughly, what that would mean in their minds, the ends of the earth. So the red line that goes around is the extent of the Roman Empire at its maximum a little bit after 100 A.D. The green shaded area, which I know it's really hard to see, I apologize, but the green shaded area, so the, the, right, the right side of the Mediterranean and up along the top side there, 
That is as far as Christianity in general spread within the first hundred years, the, the first century A.D. And then the gray-shaded area shows how far Christianity spread within the second hundred years. Now, this map is not perfect. It ignores the fact that Christians very early in the book of Acts take the gospel up the Nile River, River into Ethiopia and other parts of Africa. And that Thomas goes over to India as a missionary. And that, as far as church tradition has it, Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who was the wealthy uh, owner of the tomb that Jesus was buried in, that he took a missionary crew of merchants and families to the British Isles within just a few short years of the resurrection of Jesus. That's not represented on the map here, but this gives you an idea of what the ends of the earth looked like for these early Christians. They had no concept, you know, North America, Australia. They, they knew nothing about that. But this is the ends of the earth for them. And within a relatively short period of time, it seems like forever to us, right? but 200 years, they basically filled up this area with the message of Jesus. That is amazing to me because these guys were, were terrified, hiding in a room, whispering, quite, don't let anybody know that we're here until the Holy Spirit is given to them. And then 200 years later, this map is reality. Now, this job is not done. There are still roughly 7,000 what are called unreached people groups in the world, so a group of people that are de uh, uh, defined by location or language or culture where basically there's no gospel witness in their community. There's, there's not a gospel church. There's not a gospel missionary. They don't have a translation of the Bible in their own language. If you're born into that community, you've got basically a 0% chance of hearing the good news of Jesus. 7,000 of those communities are identified today still as unreached. So we still have a lot of work to do. That is part of why we as a church want to take the first 10% of what comes in and we want to give it to outreach and missions. So this next picture here, this is, uh, this is Aaron and Mela Stocks. So they're serving in the United States but they are serving groups of native Alaskans that are off of the road system that can only be accessed by plane. And they're helping to bring the gospel to, especially to children in those areas that are uh, disconnected communication-wise, disconnected travel-wise, and in many cases, disconnected culturally. This next picture is of the Mahmoud family in Kenya. They look exactly like the Stocks family in Alaska. Do we not have that picture, Caleb? The Mahmouds, they're not there? No Mahmouds. All right, picture in your mind, the Mahmouds. Please be praying for them. Uh, I sent an email out uh, earlier this week asking you guys to pray for them. Um, there is a real physical danger right now, particularly for Abdi, the husband and father in the family. So they have been faithfully, lovingly sharing the gospel with people who are born into the Muslim religion from Somalia as their background, and slowly God has been making inroads. They have been serving selflessly and faithfully their community for years, and recently, while Abdi was away traveling in Somalia, 
certain local forces started organizing themselves against Abdi. They started asking questions and spying on things. And things were overheard in cafes and conversations and were getting back to Abdi. And uh, basically the message is this. We have to do something to take care of this guy. He's Somali, so we'll tell the local Somali leaders and they'll take care of the problem. Now, in a few days, Laura and the kids are coming to the United States. And the natural fear is, while the family is away, will Abdi be attacked? So we need to be praying for Abdi, praying for that family. These are people that we have supported for years. So they've been here, they've shared with you as a congregation. And they are at the ends of the earth, so to speak, working to complete what God started here in Acts. All right, let's finish this up. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, you can imagine this because you live in a world of entertainment with all kinds of special effects and your mind works this way. But um, even with all that's in your mind for movies and things, imagine like you're in person and your buddy, whom you've known for three years, who somehow was dead and is alive, is now floating up into the clouds. No wires, no rocket boosters, just floating up. Their jaws are on the ground as this happens, right? They don't know what to do with this. But Jesus has said his last things, and now he's floating up into the sky. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, so we're meant to understand that these are angels. Poof, they're just there. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, the angels promise the return of Jesus. Just like Luke wants to start his account by emphatically saying, Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. With a few verses later, he wants you to know Jesus is coming back. It has been 2,000 years, but Jesus is coming back. Luke says, this is real. This is the promise of God. And I wonder, do you believe that today? Or has it just been too long? Does it seem too crazy, too off the wall, that a man who was alive 2,000 years ago would somehow come back? Luke says it's going to happen. And he gives us a little clue into how that will happen. Now, if you've tried to study the, you know, like the end of the world and prophecies and the return of Jesus and all that, um, you've got terms in your mind and timelines and all that. You, know, you get the, the Antichrist and the you know, Battle of Armageddon and the Rapture and all these things. And yet Luke says nothing about that in this. He simply says, Jesus is coming back and it's a mirror. It's the same kind of way that you just saw him leave. So if we take that as a plain reading, that suggests Jesus, when he returns, will return, essentially descending down through the sky. And many have come to the conclusion that he will return to that location, which we know from verse 12, which is next week, is the Mount of Olives. We spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So if they're in Jerusalem and needed a quiet place to retreat, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's where Jesus was arrested and he was praying that night and sweating blood and tears. He just, and the soldiers came and Judas kissed him. That happened there on the side of the Mount of Olives. And now they're on the top of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus ascends into heaven. And the angels say, he's coming back just like he left. 
Well, maybe that means he's actually coming back to the Mount of Olives. Interestingly, uh, much of the Mount of Olives right now is a cemetery. It's covered with stone and concrete crypts holding the decaying remains of thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And it may be that it is the location that life bursts back into this world as Jesus returns. All right. So, Jesus gives them instructions. He says, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. I'm going to be with you. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. But wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're supposed to wait. Now, we're on the other side of that. We, if we are in Christ have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So we're not waiting around for the Holy Spirit. We've still been given the commission. We've been given the Spirit and the power that He brings. So let's get about business of it. Yet we wait. We say, I'm not really ready here. I'm I'm not sure I know the Bible well enough or I'm afraid of these people rejecting me or maybe if I just, if I had more time, if I had more money, maybe I wait for retirement. Maybe I, want to, like, I, will, I will become more evangelistic later. I'm just going to wait right now. And yet we're on the other side of that waiting. Imagine if we, instead of making excuses saying, I'm just going to wait a little longer. We said, no, the Spirit of God is living inside of me. He has empowered me to be a witness, and I am going to go. I'm going to make disciples. I'm going to baptize them, and I'm going to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, and I'm going to trust that Jesus is with me. As you think about the idea of waiting, maybe the, the most famous Bible verse with the word wait in it comes from Isaiah 40. And as I was thinking through this, this sermon, I was thinking, well, we're on the other side of the waiting for the Spirit, so we shouldn't be waiting. But, but God tells us that we should wait for him in Isaiah 40. What is it? And so I just wanted to address this as our last part of the sermon. Isaiah 40, so written uh, 700-ish, at least, years before Jesus. The prophet says this, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? So there's that phrase again, we're sent to the ends of the earth. Who's the creator of the ends of the earth? Who's the everlasting God? It's the Lord. He does not faint or grow weary. Think about Paul, like traveling for thousands of miles on foot, multiple shipwrecks and beatings, and he grew weary, but the Lord does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So as smart as Luke is, and as great as his research is, the understanding, the knowledge of the Lord is so much higher than that. He gives power to the faint. That doesn't just mean the, the worn out or the weak. It means those who are scared, like us. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Here's the famous part. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
What is the purpose of waiting on the Lord? It's to go, even in this prophecy of Isaiah. If you wait on the Lord, you shall renew your strength, mount up with wings like eagles, wings like jet airplanes to get you to the other side of the world. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It is active. It is going even hundreds of years before the Great Commission. The prophet Isaiah is is giving us hints, giving us clues. So yes, we are to wait on it, depend on the Lord. We are to rest in him. We're not doing good works. We're not telling people about Jesus in order to earn acceptance by God. We have been accepted. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are sent out now on wings of eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not grow faint. We are called to go. And we are empowered to do that with the Spirit living inside of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious people. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to wait on you, to rest in you, to be close to you, and yet to not shrink back in fear as you have commissioned us to go. So, Lord, fill us anew with your spirit. Make us bold. Give us the, the power to be witnesses for you. Show us who you would have us be witnesses to. Give us the words to share with them. Give us wisdom to know what to say, what not to say, what questions to ask. All of that stuff, Lord. But please, make us into the kind of missionaries that you commissioned us to be in Matthew and then in Acts. Even look back in Isaiah. Lord, we want to... Um, we want to walk with you. We don't want to run ahead of you. We want to, don't want to try to force things in our own timing, in our own strength. We want to wait on you, rely on you, but, and be filled with power that comes from your spirit so that we can be your witnesses in Versailles and in northern Dark County and Ohio and the United States and around the world. So we, uh, in our limited understanding and maybe in reluctance of heart, we say to you, Lord, Send us, empower us, send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.